Hi everyone, welcome to our Decolonial Perspectives and Practices Hubs podcast, where we explore potential methods to decolonize our classrooms and learning environments. We launched this series as part of an initiative with Best Concordia, represented today by Chris Millet. So thank you, Chris, for launching this project with us. Today, the Decolonial Hub, also called the DPP Hub, is represented by Jamila. Jamila is a PhD student in sociology. We also have Cheslin, master's student in translation studies, and myself, Alban, finishing a master's in anthropology. We are all at Concordia University. In today's episode, we'll be exploring what it means to deconstruct a syllabus and reflecting on two events that we had on syllabus deconstruction. This is part one of a two-part series, so be sure to tune in for part two. Joining us today is our special guest, Matthias. He's a PhD student in film studies at Concordia. So why don't we start by you telling us a little bit more about yourself? My name is, uh, I'm Matthias. I'm a third year student in the film and moving image studies PhD program at Concordia. Uh, generally speaking, I, I would say like my research is sort of interested in certain intersections between uh, cinema, but also just visuality in general and free jazz. I think a lot too. Uh, there's that interview with Sadia Hartman and Frank Wilderson, the position of the unthought, where Sadia Hartman says that white supremacy is so wrapped up in the visual. So I'm just trying to think through a little bit um, uh, by placing cinema and free jazz in relation to one another, um, what new opportunities for thought are opened up. Awesome. Thank you, Matthias. We're so excited to have you here with us today. Jamila and Cheslin, could you tell the listeners a bit about the two events that we had on deconstructing the syllabus? Okay, so I can just give an overview of what happened. So it was about, I think this was in February that we started our first syllabus decon. Oh yeah, and the second syllabus decon was with Cheslin and the team. So the first one was in February and we were really just starting on how do we work together? How do we work together to engage in the decolonial practice of mobilizing lived experiences as tools to overcome institutional constraints. But really we focused on what it means to be uncomfortable together um, because the process of you know, looking at our canon, so our scholarship, who we use to cite, who we use to build our theory and our methods, deconstructing it, maybe even replacing it is a really uncomfortable feeling. And a lot of questions popped up because our theories are Eurocentric. Does it mean that we have to completely move away from them? Um, does it mean we have to focus on only racialized scholars? And what does it mean to privilege a voice over the other? Can it be integrated? So anyways, there was a big theme of being uncomfortable together. together. And the next theme was we proposed different citation practices to deconstruct our syllabi in our classroom. So how to agentially so be active in engaging with citations as a form of power and ethics that could be consciously used or discarded to create inclusive and accessible work. So this was really important in the process. We had um, Dr. Satoshi Ikeda, who came in and talked about student sovereignty and how in his classroom, how he employed decoloniality was actually giving the students reign to construct their own course syllabus requirements and evaluation procedures. And there's been other professors who say, oh, this is complicated because students want to be guided, but he, he's not here to speak for himself, but he gave a really intriguing look at what it means to give students power and authority over their 
environment, teaching environment. And we also had another professor, Dr. Nat Natalie Batcherville. And these two were also at the next syllabus deconstruction who unpacked what it means to actually have a syllabus based on transformative justice and is active in unraveling really traumatic topics such as sexual violence, discriminations against queer bodies, and just a syllabus that has no, for lack of better words, white scholars. It's fully racialized scholars. And what does that mean to have white scholars or Eurocentric scholars, a minority in the syllabus? And uh, some say radical, but we can talk about that after. And the last thing we really wanted to focus on was nuancing the relationship between authority um, and responsibility. So especially in the classroom, who has the authority? Who's responsible for where this is going to go? And I guess, Cheslin, you can bring into the next one. Um, yeah, it was actually the second, and it was pre-pandemic. And something that I loved was how we met with the teams um, that led to this beautiful collaborative project. So we'll meet basically, it was um, at the coffee, uh, Reggie's. Yeah, we'll meet sometimes at Reggie's, who was very mobile, um, very adaptive too. And um, to circle back on to what Jamila was saying, something that really strongly resonated with me was having a professoral understanding of what student uh, leadership and student sovereignty means. And that was very, very interesting and very powerful part of the conversation because the way that they were explaining it, it's as if you have to redefine power as being something that can exist and sustain itself outside of a hierarchy for the professor as well. So I loved looking at, you know, that new venture, that new space of having collaboration where it was not a threat to their power, but redefining how you articulate power generously as a prof slash instructor. So that side of the conversation strongly resonated with me in terms of structure. Uh, we had this horizontal roundtable moment. So speakers sitting amongst uh, the participants and then we each had like a collaborative way of going about deconstructing it. So I remember um, Lindsay talking about their project and situating us in a Afro-Caribbean conversation where we had racialized scholarship but that was also potentially problematic. So to be careful about that. Um, and then Wensing, I remember Natalie talking about their own uh, course that was still being developed um, for like PhD level um, about querying, what is it, DDSM? And then using that as a metaphor for how DDSM is more of consensual practice than the current uh, dynamics of the classroom environment. What I loved to was a flip the script moment where you had profs taking notes of what students, leaders were saying for a change. And so I feel workshops like that, you know, it's very multi-purpose. So there are so many ways that we were able to move forward and togetherness in that. So for me, a different way of doing course development, a pitching course proposal ideas, um, listening to the student voices and then having the profs taking it in. So switching again the narrative of who gets to take note of, of what, for example. Um, so I love that. And I love how everything was always reframed around like something actionable. So those are my, my little takeaways, I guess, to complement what Jamila was saying. I don't know if you guys have any questions. Yeah, I'm just sort of thinking also, like Cheslin, when you were talking about the events, and I was sort of thinking about this in relation to, I don't know if you ever feel this way, but when you're in a class and let's say you want to give input, you want to, you want to comment on something 
and what readers are you allowed to draw from where it doesn't feel like you're putting people, um, you're going to make people uncomfortable because they'll feel like, oh, I haven't read that. Right. So, for example, like you can you can always bring up Hegel. You can always bring up Nietzsche. You can always bring up Adorno or Deleuze. Right. But if you bring up something else, let's say like a poem or let's say a particular black study scholar or, you know, like Sylvia Winter or something, then it becomes all of a sudden there's a new sort of power dynamic that either feels disrupted or or instituted. So thinking about for our like decolonial practice, it's just getting over that hump of feeling, um, let's say, uncomfortable or sensitive about bringing up these writers and these authors and these activists and these musicians just sort of in common parlance, right? But just for me, that's been a part of the struggle. And in a way, it's also preparing us for those opportunities when it is completely appropriate, right? Where we find ourselves in these academic and intellectual environments where we actually have the opportunity to sort of bring forward all this stuff that we love. Yeah, no, like um, it says you're saying so many great things. I totally relate to that. Yeah, it's making, yeah, the challenge of recognizing canons that exist outside of the purview that is Eurocentric and then presumed to be more scientific than anything else, right? So it's super ethnocentric understanding of what intelligence is. Um, and then, yeah, I feel that when you introduce something that is resistant to that model of thought, let's say talking about like poems and all that stuff, I feel it's being a great vulgarizer of your scientific intelligence in that regard, because you know you're going to be met with the resistance, which already have the counter arguments for each. And then to turn that into a digestible blurb where you're being vulgarizing that and as a preface, and then you get into the, the thick of it. So I feel that it's like a multi-stage uh, process in your mind, because at the end of the day, you have to be an effective communicator to be the best outlet for anti-colonial resistance, because you can have the best, and I see that's what is missing. That's what creates a binary, like very evolved, articulate responses on both sides, but nobody takes the, you know, the extra step to make it intelligible to somebody else who is not conversant in your tradition of thought. Um, the, the syllabus construction and something that came up earlier about, um, is there, is there conflict between, between different canons, uh, being like a post-colonial or, or like anti-colonial literature? And like, I don't see the, the problem there. I mean, within the, the, the white Eurocentric canon is lots of conflict. A lot of social science and humanities in that tradition is, is a critical exercise on its own. And, and so in, in my experience and in, in the, the rare good experiences I've had in, in grad school, you can put different literatures together and it's really good because it, it's supposed to be conflicting. Like it, it, it's supposed, there, there's supposed to be that going on. It shouldn't be, if it's all uniform, then you, then you've got a major, major problem. I think that like a lot of the limitations come from the, the prof uh, in terms of, because they, I've said this before in these meetings, they've, you know, they've studied all their lives and they feel like they're the subject expert and they want to be recognized as that, but they could have major limitations in the, bodies of knowledge that they know and are they willing to to go there and to get uncomfortable i really don't have any have any answers for that and and then the other problem is that the discussion we're having is based on this of a of a mainly like white department uh, of like of white profs um and then the, the frustrations that come come within that and then okay so you you start to hire more people of color uh profs but then they're expected to be the ones that have to bring the the anti-colonial literature 
but what if what, what if one of them wants to use Weber? Like it it shouldn't it it shouldn't be like that. I think it it, it comes down to to like something needs to change there. Um, it's going to take time, but but certainly student sovereignty is is the first step. Yeah, Chris, I, I just wanted to ask as you're talking about this sort of open having this type of humility and but also the sort of the various problematics of expertise, right, as a structuring principle within the institution and within the university and within the classroom. But I was wondering if maybe one, you wouldn't mind expanding on that a little bit of just like how expertise might just be something we need to kind of get over. I, I agree. It's something that we, we need to get over, but I think as, as grad students at different stages, we also see how we have to play the expertise game too. And, and that's what, and we're putting money and time into this initiative that we're doing and we're hoping to come out of it with opportunities to either be a prof or, or be a researcher or, or, or get good jobs or whatever. And it's based on this idea that we have something that the student that's coming into the course doesn't have. I'm, I'm picturing the insecure old white prof. You know, yeah. And, and, and I, I, I want to critique that, but I'm also seeing where, where they're like, I put years in, into this and I come into my classes and these 20 something students just tell me that, that I don't know anything and that I, and I should be blah, blah, blah. And, and I think that the insecurity starts there and, and it's not good. <laughs> it's not good. And, and, um, and bringing up poets and in, in music, like I can bring up Bob Dylan in a, in a, grad seminar and a prof will be like oh yeah yeah totally great point so it's 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 all what's what's accepted and and the, yeah it's all it's it's just there's a line of acceptability with profs and, and there seems to be a line um no i just wanted to reach back on what matthias and chris were saying um so try feel um for example about the expertise slash experience paradigm right when we say like let's say 20 years experience oftentimes the threat comes from there's a difference between having 20 years or whatever amount of years experience in something or one year, but 20 times over, right? And so it's when we accept stagnation on challenge and it gets crystallized the longer the years pass. Whereas having this active re-engagement with your positionality over the years will make that person a much more capable human to digest, engage, and create and protect the forces that are challenging. So the issue is how that expertise is then stretched across like a temporality. That's the problem. And then it creates the expectation and the assumption that the longer the person has been in the office, the more difficult or problematic, right? And so again, it goes back to what's the initial postulate and what's the system that creates it? Because that's the result. That's not the problematic here that we are invested in, but it's what leads to that consistently and it's kind of the self-fulfilling prophecy of that uh, colonial and racist institution. It creates all the systemic micro-habit conditions that create a result. And then we blame it on the result. And then we're disengaged from the whole um, infrastructure that led to that point. You know, And as people were talking, was thinking a lot of that has to do with the rhetoric of language oftentimes. So when we say danger, instead of danger, it's dangerous to them or whatever, I feel it's experimentation. So when we talk about innovation, expectation, if people's eyes are just like this, and when you see danger, it's resistance. So depending on how much they're willing to commit to the struggle, they will use terminology that would, again, create that rhetoric, right, and make it very easy to opt out. And in the same way that, as you're saying, when they, <clears throat> whoever they is or in the system, right, you bring in a scholar or a reference, 
that doesn't fit the model. It's unknown. When it's from your PT BIPOC student-based lived experience, it's questionable. It's not legitimate. When it comes from, it hails from its derivative of the white dominant um, su you know, supremacist structure of, of knowledge, then it is seen as elitistic, pure, exclusive, and intellectual. But in both cases, we're dealing with an unknown variable. I don't know that person. But because it's you know, encased within that racializing context, now it either gives you more legitimacy or it takes it away. So it's again this game of of uh, perception, presumption, and like only in Gemini, we're seeing also the micro habits. Those are all the mini micro habits, like 10 seconds reactions that we have. And, and so far as we keep on not acknowledging them, we're gonna be just rehashing the same problematic issues over and over again. I wanted to jump into that and say, um, it's crazy how much capital, uh, knowing these names, knowing these, uh, these, you know, these Eurocentric, you know, the, Durkai, Marx, it brings so much capital. You mentioned them, you mentioned their theories and people are like, oh my God, exactly, Chesson, they want to know more. And so the question really is, what do we want, what histories do we want our, our, the students to learn in the class? What worldview do we want the students to take away from the class? And right now we want them to reproduce Euro supremacy and Eurocentricity. But what happens when we unravel the truth of how society, our Western society came to be off of the bodies and the epistemologies of racialized people? What, what happens when we unpack the truth and we, let's say we scraped all of the Euro scholars or we incorporated the Euro scholars and the racialized scholars to show the multiplicity of the people involved in what we know of today and, what, and how we live today? What happens is we destabilize the integrity of the Western system. This is a personal attack. Like we sit here and we wonder why this hasn't changed because it's a personal attack to actually debunk the notion of Western progress and truth. And so we're moving beyond an objective task of just like taking texts and bringing them in and out. We're actually asking people to reflect on the innate the innate racism embedded into the system and the practices that they put forward. We're asking the institution to acknowledge that their system is racist and that their course design is racist. And that is something that people do not want to do. So when incorporation becomes an attack on who we are, we don't have to incorporate. We're just talking about this because this is, you know, this is the most popular text and we need, we need the students to understand this in sociology, for, for example, to understand the discipline of sociology. And so that's why we're doing it. Or professors have said, if we did this and deconstructed our syllabus, we would have to learn a whole new syllabus before September? How do we do that? That's a lot of labor. And I'm not saying that's not true, but how do we do this? I've been, I've been teaching this course for five years and I'm and now I, I don't know how I would even start. So this is a fear, a personal attack it's important to know how deep this goes and how we have to appeal to people's anxieties. It's not that it's not possible. It's very simple, to be honest. Yeah, I think it resonates a lot with what Chris was mentioning, the insecurity of the white prof in the institution. <laughs> yes. But, but yeah, I think there's uh, something really interesting. And I think it reminds me of during the movements and the protests this summer, there was a lot of and there was a lot of people saying like being silent is being complicit and all these things. So I guess 
we just have to help people move forward from that somehow. And, um, and I really like what uh, Matthias brought up as well with all the different, like the cross-disciplinary aspects that really allows for differing epistemologies. And I'm wondering if talking about micro habits, uh, moving to instead of calling out people who are silent or who are feeling maybe insecure, because that might be it, encouraging, like continue to encourage, whether it's students and peers and other profs in the classroom who are bringing in new references, new types of references, like all these variety and diversity in their course, like trying to think about all the micro habits that we can do at any levels, basically, to move that forward. So I really like that idea. And I was going to actually direct a question to Matthias, and uh, I was going to ask you, given your experience, and maybe you can give us a little bit of background on the experience with the podcast that you had with the racist text. What do you think is the best way to move forward in regards to habit change? And do you think, like in regards to racist text, we should be removing the text or use it as a, a moment, an education moment? Which way do you think it is, is best? Yeah, that's a great question. So where, as I'm just sort of thinking through your question, Jamila, but also joining your question, I also think about how we can point to those texts today, but we're going to keep discovering new ones that our understanding of these things is still up for interpretation. My, my inclination is that it's not so much a question of like, do we need, to me, there's just so much good stuff to read that we just don't need these texts. Like that, that to me is like the main thing, right? It's, it's not, it's not a really even a debate. It's just like, why, why take up space with this? Like, why do you have this like stale piece of bread on your plate? like you could just replace it. And then, I mean, and then it's just like with something better. It's just the, the reason for me, it just feels like really easy to replace it is because I don't think we have to sort of like, like be exposed to these type of white supremacist logics in order to, to analyze them because we can read about that for, with BIPOC writers. Right. So I, I don't know. I mean, yeah, from this, my, my tendency is just to be like, we just don't need this right now. Like, it's just not, even if it's helpful, there's other stuff that's just way more helpful. So the, the thing we're trying to achieve can be achieved in a better and, and different way. I mean, specifically within the framework of like of Quebec, like we have, um, I can't remember his, his first name, but uh, last name is Cornelier. I believe he did his master's at Concordia in the film studies program, but now he's a professor um, at I think it's the University of Manitoba, but he wrote um, a really great really great essay on Pierre Valliere and kind of looking at the type of way that uh, Pierre Valliere's autobiography sort of feeds a certain like settler colonial imaginary and like specifically Quebecois brand of white supremacy, right? A really great article. And then um, they'll be, te- uh, they'll be uh, giving a, a presentation in our department next week, which is really incredible. So we'll have this opportunity to like really think these things through so I guess that's maybe that's a way to think about it. Like, cause at the same time, part of me inevitably feels this weird, like almost temptation reading Cornelier and reading the critique to actually like go back to the original text in some weird way, just to like, just to know, you know what I mean? Just to kind of not even to pick up the information cause you can catch the quotes, but just when you're, you know, when you're reading a text, you find rhythms, you find vibes, just like that sort of stuff that's sort of more below the surface that you, that's like really telling and, and that, partakes in certain like knowledge structuring and formation as well. 
So I, I'll admit that that like that temptation kind of comes on me like a little bit, but at the same time, it's like, no, nah, we probably don't need this stuff for the most part. I feel like. I love what you're saying, Matthias, about the idea of like looking at a text or any piece of content that is imbued with knowledge, not only for like the text-driven capabilities, but like the contextuality where you have rhythm and vibe and energy, because also there is a pace to how that intelligence is articulated, right? That's bypassed completely when you're just going with the one-way model of problematicity. I think it seems to be a happy medium. I think we should definitely remove texts that are overtly racist and that make people uncomfortable. I think it's a simple task. Take them away. Like, we do not need them. And then the general Eurocentric uh, canon, I like what like you were saying, Cheslin, and, and saying with you, Matthias, it's like knowing where we, where we were at and where we can go. And we're trying to almost create a flower in the desert, you know? And that's really important. And I want to just bring up the interesting things you were mentioning about flow and musicology and even Cheslin oral histories. And I think it would be interesting when we're talking about habits to look at how the ways that we have been doing things and the ways that we have evolved because we are evolving as people in our, in our thought process and our methods and the things that we can add. So what's missing, for example, oral history, um, poetry, different types of language, the different languages and in the courses and the classes, like what can be added, a sound, music, and then start from there. We should probably do uh, some kind of decolonizing methods uh, thing in the future. It would be cool to build on. Thank you everyone for joining us. We can talk more about music and alternative pedagogies in part two of this episode. Meanwhile, you can check out our Facebook page. It's called the Decolonial Perspectives and Practices Hub. And you'll find our email there if you have any ideas, opinions, or whatever comes to your mind. Please don't hesitate to reach out. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks again for listening in and stay tuned for our next episode that will be part two of this conversation. See you soon.